Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Dr. Bella Bodo. He is an associate professor at the University of Bonn in the Department of East European History. He received his BA from the University of Debrecen Sen in Hungary. He received his honors BA from University of Toronto. He received his MA in 1992 and his PhD in 1998 from York University in Toronto. He has been a tenured associate professor at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, before coming to Germany in 2015. He w- has been a fellow at the Imre Kertes College at the University of Jena 2013 to 2014. His latest book, Black Humor and the White Terror, has been published by Routledge in April. Bella, it's my honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It is my honor. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey? Um, I was born in Hungary in the mid-1960s, and uh, a small town uh, uh, not very far from the Ukrainian border. Uh, I did my high school years in in the town of Nirechaza, one of the larger towns. I went to a gymnasium there and uh, got my BA degree from the University of Debrecen. Debrecen, the second largest town in Hungary. Um, I have always considered myself, uh, it was very early on, uh, a student of history. I loved history from the age of five or age of six. And uh, with literature and sociology and later in philosophy, this was my... Uh, really the, the focus of my life. Uh, I did not, when it come to career, I could not imagine, could not even imagine uh, from the age of four, 14 uh, to do anything but history. It might be a little bit uh, narrow in, in many ways, but I have never regretted. And uh, I, I, I found my field of inquiry, history um, uh, is a very enriching and and, and and the guidance in my life. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Uh, we will talk about a, a very important period in uh, in Hungarian Jewish and European history, uh, the, the period uh, right after the First World War. Um, and we will talk about a cataclysmic event uh, in European history, uh, and in, in Hungarian history, um, a civil war which completely transformed uh, Hungarian attitudes and policies towards uh, towards uh, its Jewish minor the Jewish minority. And in many ways, this uh, event we will talk about uh, played a major role, and it paved the way to uh, uh, to the more horrific, or more rigid. Uh, discrimin- more, more intense discrimination, uh, intense violence, and ultimately uh, in the Holocaust uh, during the last phase of the Second World. Can you summarize your book for us? 
What are the main oh. themes? Oh, I was I the, the book what I, I I published in 2019 deals with political violence in Hungary and East Central Europe after the first world. And I'm I basically I'm interested how uh, a relationship which was unique in many respects uh, because uh, uh, Budapest. And, and Hungary generally proved to be very tolerant towards Jews, um, turned sour, and the relationship which could be was uh, was could be described as friendly and promising in the 1880s, 1890s became uh, uh, was moving towards indifference, hostility, and indeed um, indeed antagonism and 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 uh, and violence. And I am really I was. The book is really about this transformation and the key event in the transformation process. And I believe uh, when we talk about the origins of this uh, Jewish-Hungarian drama, when we talk about uh, the origins of the Holocaust, 1918, 1921 simply cannot, should not be overlooked. And uh, that was, and this relates not only to the Hungarian Jewish relations, but what happened to Hungary, uh, the Hungarian politics, this blind alley, Hungarian political elite navigated itself in the 1920s and the 1930s. And this culture of defeat, uh, which uh, 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 basically informed their decision-making um, in the 1920s and the 1930s, all had its roots in this um, in the cataclysmic event after the First World War. What was the Red Terror? What was the White Terror? Can you explain these terms? Well, the terms you, you are probably every student of history knows from a history textbook, especially it relates to the French Revolution and the Paris Commune of 1870-1870. So the terms itself uh, came from abroad, came from French history. When we talk about red terror and white white terror in Hungary, red terror and white terror in Hungary, we usually refer to two aspects of the civil war. The red terror describes the period uh, between March uh, 1919 and August 1919, the period of the Hungarian Soviet Republic. It usually refers to state and paramilitary violence directed against uh, the elites, the middle classes, and the peasantry. Uh, Red terror usually described as systematic and deliberate an instrument of social and political engineering. Uh, The political elite, especially its communist members, were proud, were proud, uh, described, uh, the political elite described their experiment as the dictatorship of the proletariat and saw terror as a legitimate instrument of social and political engineering. this, uh, the white terror, on the other hand, described the, the period of state and paramilitary violence between August 1919 and March 1920. 
the white terror, in contrast to the red terror, was directed against a more narrow group of political of victims, against workers, uh, working class activists, the members of the defunct uh, communist uh, state, and uh, and Jews. So it targeted in a narrow, uh, more narrow group of people. Uh, it lasted um, uh, somewhat longer than uh, than uh, the the uh, than the red terror and claimed more life. Claimed more life. The red terror claimed approximately six hundred victims, the life of six hundred victims. The white terror, perhaps as many as five thousand. And uh, at least one third, between one third and half of the victims were Jews. So, uh, 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 yeah. What is your book's contribution to modern Hungarian history? Well, the, the, it is a, the, the, my book is the first major study of political violence after the First World War. Um, it puts the post-war events into a, a, a completely, I believe, in a completely different uh, perspective. What is your book's contribution to Holocaust studies? How did the events described in this book help us understand the origins of the Holocaust in new ways? Historians talk about the Holocaust, they usually talk about events, at least the Hungarian dimension of the Holocaust, during the Second World War. So the stories, the books usually began sometimes in 1938 with the first anti-Jewish laws and continues in the 1943 and reaches its culmination during the German occupation of the country in 1944. My book uh, puts the pre-war, the pre-1938, and not so much the 1930s, but the 1920s into 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 our focus, so it goes back. It it digs deeper. It it, uh, it searches for the deeper roots of uh, of of uh, the anti-Jewish uh, of the Jewish genocide in in the nineteen forties. Uh, so it is it is uh, uh, it focuses not so much earlier books and most of the books focuses on the legal uh, on the on on the legal. Uh, or laws, uh, actions taken in the legal field. My book focuses on 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 actions and perpetrators. So my the the my thesis basically is that when we are looking for the Holocaust, we should not only uh, focus on legal uh, uh, on laws and and decrees, but we should focus on patterns. We should focus on on agency. Uh, anti-Semites who had been there in 1919 and who are there in 1944, we should focus on mental and behavior patterns um, and prejudices. And uh, if you, if we a little bit turn this focus away from the legal field, we would, uh, we would uh, discover um, pattern, patterns and continuities, stronger, uh, stronger elements of continuities between 1919 and 1944. Can you tell us about Mrs. Shandor Hamburger? The white terror uh, is normally referred to as uh, violence against uh, workers, uh, members of the defunct communist states, um, middle class Jews, 
male male uh, male individuals who had uh, participated in some form of shape or played a role in political events in 1989-1990. Until the publication of my my book, almost no attention has been paid to uh, the female victims of the Red and the White Terror. And uh, and in this, no attention has been played to sexual violence. So my book, uh, which is the main focus is political violence, uh, puts the, the sexual and sexualized violence in, in, in the center of attention. And in this story, uh, Mrs. Chandor Hamburger played a major role. She is a victim and in many respects one, uh, one of the most heroic characters in the book. Uh, she was uh, the wife of a minor communist functionary arrested during the White Terror in late uh, 1919 and uh, was uh, held as prisoner uh, in a military base. And in that military uh, base, she was repeatedly tortured and sexually abused. She survived uh, these tortures and, and, and displayed incredible courage and dignity uh, during the process. So much so that the torturers, especially younger soldiers, uh, 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 came uh, to uh, uh, came to treat him, treat her very differently. So she gained the respect, even uh, some of not the major, not the torturer, but at least the accomplices, accomplices. In, in this event. After her um, liberation, she ended up in Vienna and told her stories to the Jewish organizations and the British, uh, British, a British Labour Commission and the newspapers. So uh, this, her story be, uh, achieved a kind of symbolic value by 1920. Uh, she became a symbol of, uh, and her tribulation became the symbol of this uh, barbarism displayed by the white, uh, by, by this, uh, this white terror detachment. And also, she became a symbol of Jewish resistance and female courage. How does your book help us understand the history and origins of the Arrow Cross Party in Hungary? Um, this is indeed a, a very complex issue. Uh, and in so many ways, uh, the Arrow Cross, and there are excellent books written on it by my colleague Laszlo Korshay, for example, who argues that perhaps we put too much emphasis on the Arrow Cross. Horrific has this organization been, and our to diverted our attention from other state agencies, others, uh, uh, so other fascist and anti-Semitic parties in the 1920s and the 1930s. And my book is indeed uh, uh, try to emphasize this connection between these proto-fascist organizations in the 1920s and the state agencies responsible for the Jewish Holocaust in 1944. Because Jews were not deported by the Arrow Cross. The Jews were reported by the agents of the Hungarian army and the Hungarian police uh, under in part under still the supervision or control of Admiral Horty. And this is, uh, and many of the participants, some of the, uh, some of uh, the uh, 
uh, most important helpers uh, and agents in this process had been present already in 1919. So my response here is that the Arrow Cross, uh, the Arrow Cross, uh, and all the fascist parties had their origins in the post-war, post-war militias, uh, but they were not the only one. Uh, when, it, when it comes to violence uh, and uh, and agency. Uh, the state actors were equally important. The state actors, who, by the way, after 1938, persecuted the Arrow Cross. So my book actually diverts attention, or at least at least uh, refocus attention to the to the uh, authoritarian state uh, and the proto-fascist states, uh, which shared equal responsibility with the Arrow Cross in the ultimate uh, in the ultimate. Uh, uh, outcome of, of the events and, and in, 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 the, in the tragedies of 1944 and 1945. What were the interconnections between the white terror in Hungary that you describe in your book and the atrocities against Jews that were taking place concurrently in Ukraine? When we look at, uh, look at post-war event, we should, uh, and post-war anti-Semitism, we should uh, treat the entire regions as a continuum. Uh, the center of anti-Semitic violence was certainly Ukraine in 1919, 1918, 1919, about 150,000 Jews were killed there. But anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic violence was not confined to the Russian or the ex-Russian space. Uh, in Poland, more than 3,000 Jews were burned. In Hungary, the numbers were about the same, but there were anti-Semitic attacks, uh, attacks on Jews in Czechoslovakia, in Austria, in Vienna, and also in places like Germany. Uh, we should not forget about the Haymarket uh, pogrom in Germany in 19 in Berlin in 1923, and violence against Jews in places like Switzerland, where thousands of Jews were. Uh, were uh, deported uh, between 1919 and 1925. So I see it as a continuum uh, with uh, with overlaps and similarities. The Ukrainian case is unique, uh, unique in in its uh, in its uh, uh, in its spatial and and and, and uh, uh, spatial dimension and intensity. Uh, the violence. Uh, uh, claimed the life, as I mentioned earlier, 150,000 people. The agents included not only whites, but also reds and greens. These were the peasants anarchists, Ukrainian nationalists, Polish and Ukrainian peasants. So violence transcended ethnic boundaries, uh, even religious boundaries. So you have Catholics and you have Orthodox, uh, uh, Christian Orthodox. And uh, and uh, the intensity, the way, and the brutality of 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 of, uh, of violence, brutality of murders, were unprecedented. But it was not the. Uh, but this violence was not confined, just like it was not confined in 1881-82. The similarity is uncanny. 1881-82, uh, uh, there were pogroms in Russia, and uh, in 1882-83, experienced in Hungary, uh, you know, this infamous Tiseslar 
fraud libel trial, followed by uh, anti-Jewish disturbances in Budapest and other parts of, of uh, the state. So I would see this as a continuum. What role did rumors play in the white terror? It is a fascinating, I, I struggled how to answer the question, why do people do what they do? And uh, I'm inclined, and I have a great love for intellectual history. I'm very much interested in the rise of uh, uh, survival of old stereotypes, um, anti-Jewish stereotypical images, um, and the birth of new stereotypes, which equates, for example, communist with Jews. But it did not really explain why people did uh, in uh, uh, why did they participate in pogrom and they did this horrific? Uh, uh, what did they did? In, uh, so I tried to find the link between uh, between uh, prejudices and action, um, and I found uh, I found this link in rumors, uh, rumors which I uh, described. Uh, which I believe is a kind of actionable information. We translate these abstract images, abstract stereotype, into applicable, uh, applicable, applicable information. It it uh, rumors uh, not only makes an abstract stereotype local and temporal, but it also uh, uh, helps uh, anti-Semites to find targets. So it, uh, rumors is a major instrument for target selection. So uh, uh, without rumors, I would even say uh, hardly any of this program would have taken place. The rumors was a means of, of, of mass mobilization. It was a means of uh, target selection. And it was a major means of justification. Why people do what they do. What role did Christian churches play in the white terror? Controversial issue indeed, what role the Catholic or the Protestant churches played in this event. But, uh, the very, very simple answer would be that they were there. So there were ex-priests, Catholic priests, monks, and pastors as members. They, they were members of these most murderous paramilitary units. So they were members of the Pronoi detachments. They were members of the Heyoj detachment. They were the members of the Osterburg detachment. That is the, the first level that they are there as killers. But more important is the role what the Catholic and the Protestant, Lesserix and the Protestant hierarchy plays in this event. So uh, Archbishop, Chernok, for example, blesses the flags of the Pronoi detachment, the Pronoi battalion, later the Pronoi battalion, in the summer of 1919. Um, then the Catholic hierarchy uh, basically um, remained quiet, and that includes the Catholic hierarchy, the Christian, uh, 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 the, the Christian. Christian socialist parties either remained quiet or quasi supported uh, and defended, uh, supported the white terror and defended the perpetrators in the summer of 1919 and, uh, and the fall of 1919. 
Uh, it is true that by the end of the year, uh, the conservative members of the Catholic hierarchy began to have second thoughts. And by December 1919, the Catholic hierarchy turned against, at least the most important leaders of the Catholic Church, turned against the white terror. But some of the uh, the members of the hierarchy, including uh, Bishop Ottokar Prohaska, continued to play a major role in the anti-Semitic uh, uh, movement and continued to flirt and collaborate and cooperate with anti-Semitic groups, especially with the student fraternities, one of the major uh, major perpetrators of violence in 1990. So they were enablers uh, to some extent, uh, and they were uh, they were participants. And more importantly, uh, they, they uh, helped to legitimize violence in the summer and the fall of 1990. Now, the, we could distinguish perhaps between uh, the Reformed Church and the Catholic Church. The Reformed Church in 1919 uh, remained on uh, on the sidelines. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, some of its leaders spoke out very early on against the white terror. So the Catholic Church were more uh, directly involved uh, and more greater responsibility uh, for the events in 1919 uh, than in its reformed uh, and perhaps even less, less Lutheran counterparts, which is interesting because this distinction disappears by, 19, by the 1930s. Uh, the, the Protestant churches, which tended to be more liberal um, in, in, the, in the pre-war period, and uh, uh, even in the early 1920s, by the 1930s, they um, they uh, they had jumped on the anti-Semitic bandwagon. Uh, so that is perhaps an interesting distinction. Can you elaborate on the Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant views of Jews and the unfolding events that you've alluded to? Can you compare and contrast, you know, the Protestant views, Orthodox views, and Catholic views toward Jews and the events of the White Terror in some more detail? Um, the Catholic Church, the Catholic hierarchy uh, um, was uh, could, you know, was uh, at a war footing with the liberal state before 1918 and identified its liberal enemy or equated its liberal enemy with Jews, believed that Jews uh, somehow played a major role in uh, or were, were prompting the, the liberal elite to complete the separation of uh, separation of, of state and religion and, and uh, give equal right to Jews. Um, and uh, basically prompted uh, prompted the liberal elite to, uh, to complete uh, or at least drive forward the process of secularization. So the Catholic elite identified Jews and liberals with secularization and saw both as their enemies. So the Catholic Church became the, basically the Catholic hierarchy and Catholic ideologues, philosophers, theologians like Ottokar Prohasko became the mainstay, indeed the founders of Hungarian, uh, Hungarian anti-Semitism in the 1880s, 1890s. 
So we cannot go around the Catholic Church and Catholic intellectual so when we talk about the birth of Hungarian anti-Semitism in the 1890s, 1890s. So it, beside uh, the Hungarian gentry, it was the Catholic elite, the Catholic hierarchy, and the Christian socialist parties, often led by priests, right, who uh, have to create, supported, and maintained the anti-Semitic momentum in Hungary in the 18, uh, in the late 19th century, and indeed before the First World War. Now, uh, so they created uh, the first anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish stereotypes, right, uh, which equated Jews with secularization, um, Jews with uh, a city, city culture, with degeneration, uh, um, um, with prostitution, uh, uh, with Oswald culture, as the Germans, uh, Germans say, uh, and every scene and every illness with poverty, uh, impoverishment, exploitation. Um, so, uh, and they equated modernity and the problems of modernity with Jews. Now, the Protestant church and Protestant uh, intellectuals played a less important role in the process, but they were not entirely absent. Uh, perhaps the two uh, uh, important, inter uh, uh, important intellectual would be here is Miklos Barta, who, who occupied a, an important role in, uh, in, a, in a, a reformed church, and Miklos Semere, uh, who was also uh, uh, connected to the Protestant, Protestant churches. But by and large, the Protestant church role remained less significant in the process, uh, they usually embrace the interest of the Hungarian gentry, especially the impoverished nobility in the eastern part of Hungary. So Protestant stereotypes usually associated Jews with capitalists and uh, landowners. Um, uh, so, uh, so the stereotypical images and exploiters of of, of, of poor peasants, especially Ukrainian peasants in the northeastern corner of Hungary. And uh, so, the, the Protestant, uh, Protestant uh, anti-Semitism on the whole uh, remained a marginal phenomenon. So the, the anti-Semites never really uh, entered the inner circle of the, uh, of, of the Protestant elite. Uh, so this is the story in 1919, but as I mentioned earlier, uh, this uh, was to change uh, and change rapidly in the 1920s, especially in the 1930s. So when it comes to anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Jewish hostility and even violence in the 1930s and 1940s, there was no major difference between the two churches by then. But this was not the case before 1940. How is the white terror remembered in contemporary Hungary? How has collective memory changed and evolved? Well, uh, I could say that it is not remembered at all. It is one of those, uh, two, after 1990, one of those events swept uh, under the carpet uh, by the new political elite of mainly liberal conservative, conservative or uh, right-wing uh, uh, convictions or, or beliefs and political background. So by 
while the, the, the uh, while in the 1950s, 1960s, the white terror became a quasi one of the ideological edifices of uh, the communist states. One of those, uh, one of those, uh, 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 fact which the communist elite. Uh, believed supported their claim to power. After 1919, this event was uh, was either ignored or uh, or denied. Um, and it is a fascinating story where today so many books, the dozens of books, have been published the last 20 years on the Red Terror. Uh, uh, only my book uh, gave uh, uh, adequate exposure to uh, anti. Uh, Jewish and anti-working class and anti-leftist violence after uh, after the collapse of the communist experiment. Uh, how could we explain it? It is a natural reaction to some extent to the communist distortion uh, uh, of, of history, but it goes beyond that, right? Because the communist uh, never really was never really interested in ex- in in exposing the 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 the, the scale of violence especially when it came to Jews in 1990. So when the communists talked about the white terror, they mainly meant anti-socialist and anti-workingness violence. Anti-Jewish violence was either denied or uh, or um, minimized or trivialized. And what, interestingly enough, that the new right-wing or conservative or conservative liberal interpretation of the civil war basically falls into the same trap. Right? They, they deny these ethnic religious aspects of political violence in 1919. Uh, and they see uh, the white terror as just like the conservatives and the right-wingers did in the 1920s as a um, reaction, indeed a justifiable reaction, to the more, much more serious, much more widespread red crimes. Who is Captain Pal Pronay? Can you elaborate upon him? Every major political event is associated somehow with a uh, with a with an, a leading individual. When we talk about the French Revolution, we think of Robespierre. Uh, we think of Napoleon later on. When we think of the Bolshevik Revolution, we think of Lenin or Trotsky. Um, when we think of uh, events in Hungary in 1918-1919, the democratic experiment is associated with uh, uh, the Red Count, uh, uh, Mihai Karwai, or uh, a communist experiment with Béla Kuhn, and the uh, white experiment, the counter-revolution with Miklos Horty, and uh, uh, Baron uh, Deputy Colonel Pa Pronoy. Pa Pronoy was uh, the commander of the most, the largest, most influential, and most murderous of paramilitary groups in 1919-1920. His groups murdered at least uh, 2,000 individuals and perpetuated some of the most horrific crimes in Hungarian and European history. He himself was a scion of a very uh, liberal, a very famous and liberal, at least in the 19th century, uh, Hungarian uh, um, Hungarian aristocratic family. Uh, we could 
even call him the black sheep of the family because uh, the family uh, made uh, it's uh, most of the, the members of the family were solidly in the liberal camp uh, in the 19 and the early 20th century indeed one of the the members uh, of uh, of his family opposed the anti-jewish laws in the late 1930s and the 1940s one of the most uh, advocate strongest advocates of of equal rights in the 19 30s and the 1940s. Himself, it's interesting that he was not only a, 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 a cruel, sadistic commander, but also an aspiring, uh, aspiring writer. These murderers, hardly any of them wrote uh, down the experience, uh, uh, published their diaries. Paproni actually wrote two diaries, a two-volume uh, two volume diaries, which he planned to publish uh, in the early 1940s. He was um, a, a proto-fascist uh, paramilitary leader. I would not describe him as a fascist because he was, uh, in many respects, the man of the 19th century. Uh, he was uh, still sympathetic towards the Habsburgs, and he did not, uh, he hated any kind of, uh, so he did, did not play, with, even with the conservatives. So he was a reactionary rather than a social reformers, reformer. Um, but he, he is, is interesting in a sense that he published his experience and his two-volume uh, diary served as the basis of my work. And indeed, uh, I unfortunately, it have, they have not been, translated and published, but they, if they are published, they would uh, be one of the most, uh, in many ways, these two diaries equals or could be compared to Said's uh, writing, uh, 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 the, the, the Count Said's um, uh, diary. So it is, it, it is a, it, it was a, it not only a, a sadist, and an incredibly cruel ideologue, but also a man who uh, who had uh, intellectual pretensions. And we are lucky enough that he actually published his experience, and we have a, a window into the mindset of this of this of the uh, one of the uh, crudest and cruelest individuals in modern Hungarian history. What was the Tosegi? Affair. In my book, I try to bring uh, the experience uh, in, in, in so make make this experience what the white terror was uh, uh, close to the readers. Although there were dozens of pogroms in Hungary in 1919, um, very few of these pogroms were uh, were described in details, and very few events were actually uh, became uh, political or turned into political scandals. We were lucky enough that one of these pogroms, one of these horrific events, which I described as a Tosegi affair, made, uh, uh, became an, a national and international sensation. So we have uh, an, an event which was, uh, which was, uh, uh, which, which was, which was uh, preoccupied Hungarian public opinion, 
um, uh, was in, investigated by the legal system, and uh, and intellectuals occasionally uh, uh, published their opinion on. Uh, so the Tosegi affairs, in short, describes the murder of three middle-class Jewish individuals in the town of Fonyod in August 1919. These three individuals were accused of committing or, or committing or participating or aiding and abetting communist crimes. Uh, none of these accusations were true. And nevertheless, these three individuals were tried in a, in a kangaroo court, court, and at the end of the trial, they were hanged. Um, and after their death, uh, this, uh, 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 thanks to his wife, this, uh, one of, wife of one of the victims, uh, and uh, and his family members, uh, this uh, this event uh, was investigated by a parliamentary committee, uh, and indeed this, a process was put in action to persecute his crime, and but this prosecution never reached the trial stage. Can you tell us about Dr. Albert Tosegi and his wife, Elana? Can you elaborate about their lives, their experiences, and the agonies that befell them? Uh, I would, yes, Albert Tosegi came from a very famous uh, Jewish family, the uh, Freud uh, family, uh, about him, the French word we mentioned. He himself was one of the victims. One of the one of the three victims of, uh, of 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 this horrific event taking place in the spa town of Fuyund. Albert Tosegi had nothing to do, basically directly with the town. He and his wife were uh, vacationing in the town, where the family uh, uh, family had uh, uh, possessions. Indeed, the family was one of the largest landowners in in the county. And possessed a very pretty, a very pretty uh, vacation home, a mansion actually uh, along the along Lake Balaton. Um, Albert Tosegi was a middle-aged um, administrator, high-ranking civil servant in the Ministry of Economics in Budapest. Uh, he f- sought refuge in this in this small, sleepy towns to escape. Uh, the consequences of the of, of uh, the red terror, basically the chaos and violence uh, in Budapest. Uh, he was arrested on false charges that he sent uh, he uh, he aided and abetted this communist experiment in, locally, and uh, uh, brought to this uh, gendarme station, uh, tried and 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 hanged. His wife did everything in her power to save him. It is, a, it is a heartbreaking story of marital love and loyalty. She uh, contacted uh, Admiral Horty, uh, begged him. Admiral Horty was very close, uh, the headquarter of Admiral Horty, the head of the, uh, the, the, the National Army. He was in Shiofog. She visited him, begged him to to uh, to order his soldiers uh, to release her husband, and indeed, 
in a rare act of clemency, Horty issued a uh, issued an order, ordered his men to release Tosegi and his two uh, to uh, to France, and, uh, and the the militiamen, the militia leader, uh, the head of the militia leader, militias, ignored Horty's order, and against his order, they they hanged uh, these three victims, including Albert uh, Tosegi. Uh, his, that was. Uh, that was in so many ways uh, heartbreaking because his wife was uh, witnessing his hanging and she arrived in the last minute and begged on, on, on her knees the militia leaders to release her husband and, and they, uh, they, uh, they left at her they dragged her into a, a neighboring buildings a neighboring buildings where she through the window witnessed her husband's death. Her husband did not die uh, easy. Uh, they, they fell, uh, the fell, the branch of the tree broke. Um, so it, it, even that added to the drama and the, and the tragedy. After the death uh, of her husband, she tried to find justice. Uh, she went public with her stories. And uh, 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 obviously the case did not go very far, never reached the trial stage. The murderers uh, got away. They got a few weeks uh, house arrest, or they were confined to the military base. Uh, they left at her. She and her uh, other members of her family emigrated to Vienna and died shortly. Died shortly after her husband. Uh, so it is a truly tragic, uh, indeed a heartbreaking story of of um, of. Um, of, uh, of marital love and loyalty and uh, and, uh, and, uh, and trust. Who is Ferenc Freund? Can you say more about him and tell us about him? Uh, I visited, I was, uh, when I was doing my research, I visited this place. I, I visited uh, 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 some of the buildings, obviously the last, uh, Almost hundred years, more than hundred years, the town has been transformed. Right, the towns do change, uh, but some of the buildings survived. The school buildings was still there, and I found the place where the execution took place, um, and I found uh, the family's uh, the family's villa, the family's mansion. Now, the Freud family was or played a major role in the modernization of the spa town Fonyol, which was a sleepy uh, fishing village until the mid-19th century. So the Freud family in two generations participated in the modernization of the town and the region. They were industrialists, uh, they were investors, uh, they created the local uh, mining companies, uh, and they became indeed the most important agricultural uh, entrepreneur in the county. The Freud family, uh, Freud Tosegi family, had, uh, was the largest owner of, of land in, uh, in the county. Uh, um, and as agricultural entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, they were unbelievably successful. Uh, Ferenc Freud, uh, in 1919, was an elderly man, and he lived in Budapest. 
and he was dying of cancer uh, during the event. Uh, one of the accusations against his son was that he was uh, sending money and uh, sending uh, sending uh, uh, food to, her, uh, to his father, who was a communist. Obviously, the Freud Tosegi family had nothing to do with communism. Um, they were actually no longer Jewish. The father converted to Roman Catholicism. And uh, Albert Tosegi himself, a middle-aged man, was sympathetic, ironically, to the Christian socialist movement, uh, which uh, which uh, he obviously was not, but the Christian socialist movement was tainted with anti uh, anti-Semitism in the in the in the 1880s, 1890s. So we are talking about a, a convert family, a family of converts, and their conversion to Christianity did not save them, uh, did not uh, did not uh, did not uh, change uh, their fate. Can you tell us about Albert Graner? Who was he? What happened to him? Now, uh, this, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the Tosegi Freud family was the largest landowner in the county, and and they were the members. We're talking about two brothers were very successful entrepreneurs. They were producers of wine. Interestingly enough, of wine. Uh, introduced wine in the southern shore of uh, of, 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 uh, of Lake Balaton. Um, and also, and more importantly, they bred horses. And Albert Graner, one of the uh, most important horse breeders in Hungary before the war. And uh, the stable where he bred his horses are still around. So after 1945, when the communists took over the family state, um, a part of which was sold off in the interwar period, they continued, the communists continued to bred horses in the same places where Albert Granier made his name as horse um, breeder before the First World War. So we are talking about an expert we are talking about a, a national, indeed internationally known horse breeder. Uh, and indeed his success, his expertise, which evoked the incredible jealousy and hatred in his, in his competitor and fellow estate manager, Adam Furias, who denounced him as a, as a communist. Again, an accusation which uh, made no sense and in fact, uh, ran against ran against uh, against uh, the fact because not only was Graner not a communist, but uh, he was uh, under under supervision or under under surveillance uh, during the communist experiment. Can you tell us about Hungary's neologue Jewish community during these years? What were the ramifications and consequences of the white terror for them? Hungarian Jewish community was divided uh, into two and later three groups. Uh, a very a story somewhat similar to uh, the to the history of German Jews. Uh, about f- almost fifty percent of Hungarian Jews uh, became uh, neologues. Neo neologue. Uh, 
which is basically a Hungarian word for reform Jews. Hungarian reform Judaism was somewhat more conservative than its German counterpart. But for the sake of simplicity, let's call them reform Jews. The second half, or the majority of Hungarian Jews, remained orthodox. And then orthodox, and orthodoxy had obviously different currents. Uh, there was Western Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, and uh, you have Hasidism. The, the neologues were in the minority, but uh, the neolog community was much wealthier and much more influential than its orthodox counterpart. Uh, so neologues uh, were in a high majority in Budapest, and the Budapest neolog community claim to speak not only for uh, the Reformed Jewish community, but Hungarian Jews as a whole, for every for Orthodox and Neologues alike. Now, Neologues were Hungarian nationalists. The Neologues believed that Judaism was only a religion. Uh, so uh, they, uh, they believed that uh, Hungarian uh, so Judaism, and they called themselves uh, uh, Hungarian Israelites, uh, that uh, Jewish religion, Judaism, and Hungarian patriotism and nationalism could be reconciled. So Hungarian Jews embraced cultural assimilation. The uh, neologues assimilated culturally quickly into the Hungarian nation. So by uh, between 1850 and 1890, uh, almost entirely uh, the, the urban Jewish community, mainly neologues, uh, became Hungarian speakers. Uh, they dominated, they were very influential as liberal journalists, editors of, of journals, editors of comic weeklies, um, uh, political reviews, uh, theater, or uh, culture organizers, actors, and so on. So the Hungarian neolog community played a major role in the modernization of Budapest, the modernization of urban culture. So when we talk about Budapest or Hungarian urban culture, we cannot overlook, and indeed to, to some extent, we're talking about Hungarian neolog uh, neolog, we cannot look overlook the neolog contribution, uh, it, which was equal, if not uh, more significant than the non-Jewish or, uh, or or major contribution. So, urban culture, uh, to some extent, was neolog culture, um, or the Jewish contribution was vital. Now, how did they react to? The, it came as a total shock. Hungarian Jews looked to Hungary and Budapest in particular as the second Jews. And uh, there was hope for a complete merging of the Hungarian uh, or non-Jewish or Christian, later it's called Christian, and the Jewish segment of the Hungarian middle class. So this the dream of a, a condominium as a symbiosis, symbiosis between uh, Jewish and non-Jewish cultures uh, came to an end by 1914, especially by 1919. So 1919, actually marks as a watershed, uh, um, as, as a break in Hungarian-Jewish uh, 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 relations. And the end of this, uh, this uh, dream of peaceful 
symbiosis, not only peaceful coexistence, but true symbiosis between these two groups. Um, the neologues saw the white terror as uh, experienced the white terror as a true trauma, unexpected. Uh, it, it came out of the blue, uh, and they, uh, especially the first six months, they were uh, completely disoriented. Completely disoriented. They tried to end the white terror by making ties to contact with the Hungarian political and militarily, especially with Horthy. Uh, so they basically played a very traditional goal of of talking to the elite, trying to uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, to gain uh, to get. Uh, Interse intersected, inter intersected, uh, get uh, get them involved uh, to restrain the militias. Sometimes they were successful. And many times, or in the majority of cases, as the Tosegifer demonstrated, their intervention did not work. Did not work. Um, um, and in, in some respect, they continued this uh, this belief that uh, this Hungarian. Assimilation uh, or assimilation to Hungarian culture, which before the war was mainly about changing language and changing names, and the interwar period it was about conversion and uh, uh, conversion and intermarriage would basically uh, would would be enough would be enough. Uh, in in the end, uh, this did not uh, the, uh, this assimilation process um, did not uh, did not uh, bring the desired. Outcome. Uh, so the assimilation, in the end, um, failed. Failed. But Hungarian Jews, the majority of Hungarian Jews, remained solidly uh, patriotic. They continued to march down on this assimilation respect, uh, path in the interwar period, and the neo-law continued to advocate full assimilation, cultural assimilation into the Hungarian nation and increasingly into the Hungarian ethnic group. How did the neolog community adapt between the white terror and the onset of the Holocaust? I, uh, more as I answer this question, they did not. They did not. The answer shortly is that they draw the wrong lessons from uh, the Holocaust. They believed that the elite were willing and and capable of restraining the anti-Semitic uh, uh, anti-Semitic uh, hotheads and anti-Semitic ideologues um, uh, in the interwar period. Uh, this hope was not completely misplaced. If you look at Horty's uh, conservative advisors like Istvan Bethlehem in the 1920s, uh, even in the 1930s when uh, the Hungarian elite put uh, uh, Ferenc Szálasi, the head of the Aerocross uh, movement, into prison. And indeed, the Hungarian elite uh, did not, did not, until 1944, jump on, or, uh, so the Hungarian conservative elite did not uh, co co collaborate and cooperate with Hitler uh, between 1939 and 1944. They did not surrender Hungarian Jews. So this, uh, in, in some extent, was uh, it goes to the credit of the Hungarian conservatives. On the other hand, the Hungarian conservatives tolerated 
uh, anti-Semitic agitation and basically supported anti-Jewish laws which deprive Jews of their of their, of their, of their possessions and make the, make them second-class citizens between 1938 and 1944. So the, the, the balance is rather mixed when it comes to the Hungarian elite and uh, the, the faith and the trust the Jews Jewish community, the neolog community, put into the Hungarian elite was was half justified, half uh, half too wide-eyed, and in the end counterproductive. When the conservative elite was removed from power after the German occupation, and and the arrow cross, not so much arrow cross, but the more radical anti-Semites uh, uh, of Imrady types and the rest uh, uh, grabbed power or was appointed by the uh, by the Nazis. Uh, they were completely hopeless, completely hopeless, and and, uh, and and basically did not, could not do, could not uh, could not do anything. Could not uh, face uh, face up to 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 the challenges posed by this by these extreme times. How did the early Zionist movement respond to the White Terror? Zionism is uh, interestingly enough. Even though it was, or at least one of the places, uh, uh, one of the birthplaces of Zionism was Budapest. Theodor Herzl was uh, born in Budapest, and his family uh, played an important role in in, uh, in the history of Hungarian Jews. Zionism remained a minor movement in Hungary, and it was a minor movement in 1919. A minor, mainly intellectual rather than political. So when we look at uh, Russia, we look at Poland, we look at Romania, uh, Zionism is a political movement with a clear-cut goal. Hungary is mainly about, it's an intellectual movement. It is more about uh, uh, publishing uh, Zionist works, uh, high-quality journals like Multe, Past and Future, uh, edited by Josef Potai, um, and as a political movement, remained uh, remained uh, almost insignificant or minor, minor. Now, in 1919, uh, after the First World War, Zionism did uh, did uh, became become more important, uh, especially among um, the children of Orthodox Jews, and there is a generational conflict, especially among young. Jews, Jewish men and women. So when we talk about Zionism in 1919, we usually talk about young Jewish war veterans. And these young Jewish war veterans did organize. So they did organize militias uh, uh, in 1918 during the Civil War, uh, the democratic phase of the Civil War, which was really about chaos, and try to protect local Jewish communities. So uh, it was uh, in, the, in the rural areas, especially in the northeastern corner, uh, the, the home base of Orthodox uh, Jews. Uh, and in Budapest, uh, 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 it was very popular among Jewish students. Uh, Jewish students, uh, especially those who, who excelled in, uh, in, in sport. Uh, so Zionism took a, a more principled uh, 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 
a principled action and more principled attitudes towards uh, uh, the white uh, terror. Uh, but simply, Jews were, in, in, uh, in, in, especially in the countryside, a small minority. Uh, in most places, they made up about 40, uh, uh, between uh, 5 and 10 in the eastern part, even 30% of the local population. Um, so they could not really, these uh, Jewish militias, could not really compete uh, with uh, these well-armed, state-funded paramilitary groups. Were there any known, quote-unquote, righteous Gentiles who protected Jews during the White Terror? Perhaps the term is not, it's difficult to apply. It is, uh, uh, the term is, is uh, the term is um, very uh, much applicable to events uh, during the Second World War. In 1918-19, there were many individuals who stood up for Jews. But it's very difficult to know why. Uh, did it do it on the question of principles? Why peasants opposed these paramilitary groups who entered their village? Do they do it on, on the uh, question of empathy or sympathy for their Jewish neighbors? Or they simply hate outsiders? They simply distrust uh, uh, urbanites. They simply distrust members of the middle class, people in uniform. So the the motives are very complex. There are clear indications that local, in the case of the Tosog affair, they defended local Jews, especially local uh, local um, uh, merchants. Uh, the local merchants uh, called Sonnenschein was very popular with the with local peasants. Uh, by the way, the family is still around, uh, remained in the in in the small town. Uh, the descendants, one of the descendants of of uh, Lippold uh, Sonnenschein, is a doctor. Uh, so the family uh, is. Uh, uh, I see the house where they, they possess is the house is still in the family possession, completely assimilated uh, family. Uh, uh, the family, the, the village protected uh, him not as Jews, but as a local merchant, a local merchant who gave them credit, who treated them uh, treated them very well. So the the motives uh, is is really uh, uh, more complex. Uh, the, the the price to be paid was not comparable to what we encountered in 1944. So uh, many local administrators, high-ranking administrators, opposes these paramilitary groups because they hate disorder, and they consider these paramilitary groups as the seeds of disorder. No empathy or sympathy, or empathy or sympathy for Jews, played only a secondary role. And, and so it is very difficult to decipher their motives. And clearly, when it comes to peasants, they could be killed by paramilitary groups. So they could, uh, they played with fire. But the members of the elite who opposed the paramilitary groups, they were not. And sometimes these members of the elite, they responded to, to bribes. The family members did everything in their power, for example, to liberate their loved ones from from captivity. So somebody who accepts bribes uh, is not necessary, or I would not call him at all uh, a positive figure, clearly not 
uh, in, in the category we, we mentioned. So it is uh, so to decipher motive is is I, I think is very important. We have to look at the price these people were. Why did they do what they do, and what kind of price were they prepared to pay? So and this is somewhat different from the Second World War. Can you tell us about prisons in Hungary during the years of the White Terror? What were prison conditions like? So when we think of the White Terror, usually we associate it with these murderous militias moving from town to town, uh, organizing uh, kangaroo courts and executing pogroms or uh, participating in uh, particip- participating in pogroms. In fact, a better part of the violence took place in military prisons uh, or just civilian prisons and internment camps. Internment camp uh, uh, was set up uh, in 1919 to house uh, the members of uh, or people who were some way involved in the communist experiments, functionaries of, of the Soviet Republic. And by the end of 1919, early 1920, these prisons, military prisons included, and internment camp housed approximately 70,000 individuals. So we are talking about an explosion in the size of the prison population. And uh, the Hungarian prisons, these prisons were ill-prepared, too small, uh, poorly equipped to deal with this, uh, with this influx. Uh, many of these uh, internment camps were originally set up to house uh, POWs, POWs during the, the last phase of the So they were hastily constructed uh, establishments in the outskirts of, of uh, major towns, uh, uh, shanty town, uh, kind of shanty town appearance, shacks, um, poorly equipped, no sanitations whatsoever, uh, but also poorly guarded establishment. Um, so uh, the conditions were horrific, especially when it comes to uh, uh, the provision of food and water and, and uh, protection against cold. Um, so these uh, were horrific uh, uh, places, uh, in many ways comparable to the Russian gulags uh, in uh, in uh, in, uh, in the eastern part of the Soviet Union, um, uh, the treatment of uh, of the prisoners were were bad, uh, but uh, but uh, not as uh, uh, not as uh, mistreatment was not as systematic than in the Nazi camps. So in the Nazi camps, I, I made this comparison in my book. Uh, there were extermination camps, and there were camps where. The end goal was clear. It was uh, extermination through labor. Uh, so the average person lived uh, six months. And the chance to survive was indeed, uh, indeed small. Uh, uh, here, uh, uh, Nazi camps were usually, these labor camps were very well guarded. There was no, uh, no escape. Uh, these internment camps, the boundaries were porous. So people could escape. Right, uh, labor was rare, so they were, the function of this camp was not to hold individuals, rather than put them to work and work them to death. Um, the treatment varied; it was generally bad, uh, but uh, the end goal 
was uh, was uh, was not necessarily death. So uh, uh, many people died of uh, of illnesses, mistreatment, rape were incredibly common. Hardly any women escaped rape in this in this in these places. Um, physical abuse was common. Uh, beating death uh, did occur, uh, uh, but uh, violence was not as systematic as we will find in, in Nazi camps in the 1940s. What does your book teach us about torture? How does your book contribute to theoretical debates about torture? Now, the torture has an interesting, often suppressed history in Europe. But as we know, that uh, there was a, a discourse against torture during the French Revolution uh, in the early 19th century, uh, and torture by the 1870s had been outlawed uh, uh, by almost every to my knowledge, every European state, including Russia. Torture was reintroduced uh, through the back door in the 1880s in Russia to fight anarchism. So anarchism and torture went hand in hand. And then during the First World War, especially in its first phase, torture experienced a revival. And it was used on all sides during the war to extract information from POWs and also to uh, to punish and terrorize uh, the civilians. Now, torture uh, achieved a, a mass scale uh, during the civil war in Russia and ultimately led to the establishment of such state terrorist organization as the Cheko. Uh, you know, the forerunner to the KGB. Uh, the Hungarian uh, uh, case is somewhere between the middle. Rather, torture was practiced extensively both by the red and the white militias in 1919 and 1920. Uh, the white militias, these educated middle-class individuals of the university graduates, were very, very skilled and very in- inventive uh, in, 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 in the way of uh, extracting information or simply extracting pleasure from the suffering of, uh, suffering of their victims. So what we see here in the First World War and the post-war fears is a laboratory of, of violence, including torture. My book tried to uh, basically to see this, uh, uh, locate uh, torture in 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 a, in the culture of these paramilitary groups, especially the culture of the so-called closed institution. So I make this connection between the dormitories, uh, dormitories, military bases, military groups, and 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 and, and this paramilitary, uh, even sport clubs, and uh, and uh, and tortures uh, uh, and pleasure, torture for pleasure. Uh, carried out by these paramilitary groups. So it is an integral part, uh, interesting enough, of the culture of these of young men, young war veterans. And uh, so I try to emphasize in my book the cultural elements and, and in the connection to uh, the torture perpetu- perpetrated by uh, young soldiers or ex-soldiers and torture uh, known to the contemporaries um, in in dormitories, uh, military academies, 
cadet schools, uh, workers' dormitories, and military bases. So uh, civil uh, peacetime treatment, peacetime torture vis-a-vis uh, -vis wartime torture. So that is probably the new, uh, the new element. The second element is the connection between fun and uh, uh, you know the pleasure. Uh, what so uh, these young men try to gain, uh, gain uh, so the purpose of the torture, and uh, what is what purpose, what goals, uh, ultimately this this serve as a means to uh, reinforce cohesions, so to maintain group cohesions, to create groups and maintain the cohesion of individual units and maintain uh, the connection uh, between. Uh, individual members, uh, maintain group hierarchy, and uh, this loving and caring relationship uh, between uh, leaders and the land. So torture and violence in general plays a, uh, plays a, has a functional role in creating and maintaining, uh, uh, maintaining these murderous uh, paramilitary groups. Can you comment on the relationship between torture and entertainment as you present it in your book? In what ways are entertainment and torture interconnected? Well, one of the most horrific uh, findings uh, of, of, of my research was to discover this connection between fun and torture, entertainment and uh, entertainment and, uh, and humiliation and destruction of others. And clearly, uh, uh, they were connected. So torture, in, in both in, in a spatial and temporal dimension. As a torture, as a, so, uh, torture often followed, uh, 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 entertainment preceded torture, could precede torture. So uh, the perpetrators often met in tavern. They had a a a, a kind of conversation, uh, a, a few drinks before they uh, before they uh, before they uh, started. So many of these uh, pogroms, for example, began at the local taverns, where soldiers and organizers gathered to discuss what to do. And so the, the pogroms could, uh, the, the entertainment fun could both precede and follow pogroms. So after the soldiers completed their jobs, the pogroms were over, uh, or, or the people whom they targeted were killed. They got together to celebrate their uh, their uh, their deeds. So drinking, uh, uh, partying, uh, uh, playing music, dancing, celebrating were uh, were connected uh, to, uh, to 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 violence, to torture and murder. Uh, so this connection was not uh, not uh, not accidental at all. And what is interesting that many cases, not only uh, the, the perpetrators, but the local elites participated in these celebrations. So after pogroms, the local elite organized balls or organized dance, uh, dancing events where not only uh, you know, marriageable daughters, but the entire local elite 
made their appearance. So there was a, a relationship, just like uh, uh, there was a relationship, between, there was a, a, a connection between uh, entertainment and murder. Uh, drinking, uh, making fun uh, was, was basically enabled. Uh, so these, these, uh, these parties basically enabled uh, the murderers, uh, the, these, these groups, uh, to, uh, to carry out uh, in these, and, and basically they deal with uh, what they have done. What is the interconnection between entertainment and entrainment? What do you mean by the term mutual asymmetrical entrainment? Violence is not easy. Uh, violence is not easy. Um, it always has two sides. It has, uh, it, it needs, uh, it, it, it needs a perpetrator, it needs a victim, and has to be uh, taken place at the right place at the right time. And uh, many historians, sociologists, especially my examine Sofsky was mentioned, but uh, other Cooper and, and, and uh, 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 the uh, I, I, I cite, uh, see this as a product of interaction. So in my books, I, I rely heavily on the interactional theory of violence to explain the dynamism of these events, how these tortures, how these murders, even rapes, could take place. And it sees it as a kind of relations between the perpetrators and the victims, as a process in which the perpetrators gain the upper hand, but gain the upper hand. And, and demolishes the victims, demolishes. The victims is unable to exert uh, resistance. And this process, this process is, 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 uh, is not a simple one, but some of the individuals I described in the book as uh, violence experts had already gained experience either in the army or in the dormitory, so they might have pre-war uh, civil war experience of, of gaining this knowledge, how to break down resistance, how to create this, uh, this uh, unbalanced relationship. And the enrailment is, 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 is what, what happens, the violence is not only difficult, but also it has a, it has a pleasure, uh, a, a, a pleasure uh, uh, a pleasure, uh, an enjoyable and highly in, uh, highly intoxicating aspect. So people who participate in, in, in the perpetrator's side became increasingly involved in the deeds, uh, uh, just like when somebody runs, somebody just like a jogging or doing any physical exercise, uh, and, 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 and the body takes over. And, and it, it maintains the action, maintains its momentum, and it becomes highly, highly enjoyable. So that is what I, I call it entrailment, that the person is completely involved and gains physical pleasure from the humiliation and the torture of the other. Uh, and this this uh, uh, this entrailment directed uh, uh, re related to entertainment in the sense, but both entertainment and entertainment provide joy. 
So joy in the physical, uh, in, in a sexual manner, it could the extraction of sexual pleasure. But more importantly, it is the extraction of pleasure gained from the destruction of the body and soul of the other, especially the body. So they could not stop. The experiment means when, when an event starts and uh, uh, locking up a person, torturing the person, even raping the individuals, it did not stop there. But it has to proceed one form of the uh, uh, the, the the transition from one form to the other is rather smooth. And almost there is a, a snowball effect, could not be stopped. So the perpetrator cannot stop. It, 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 what starts out as a physical abuse, maybe as a fun, to bidding the soul of the individuals, it proceeds to, uh, to more physical, more serious torture. It could proceed to sexual uh, rape, men or women, uh, could proceed to uh, 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 to, to maiming the individual, to, to murder, and even then, the murder is not enough. They have to proceed to the humiliation of the of the corpse, the maiming of the corpse. So this, what sociologists describe this entrainment, this this snowball effect, which uh, which uh, which cannot be controlled, and even the perpetrators are not completely in control of. Can you tell us about Hungarian Prime Minister Count Pal Teleki? Why is he notorious? Uh, the notorious is, is a question of perspective. There are many people in Hungary who celebrate Teleki as a, a patriotic uh, uh, politician. And indeed, uh, uh, his achievements uh, when it comes to, uh, to Hungarian foreign policy was considerable. Uh, he, uh, in 1919, when he tried to defend territory integrity of 1920 as a scientist, and during the Second World War, he did not, did not uh, stand up to Hitler, but he opposed the Hungarian participation in the occupation of Yugoslavia, and in protest he committed suicide. So he is seen by many Hungarians as a, a, a patriot, and a tragic figure. But there is another side to the story. Uh, uh, Teleki was also a convinced anti-Semite and indeed one of the first racist anti-Semite uh, who believed um, uh, or thought that he could justify anti-Semitism on a pseudo, uh, he believed, scientific ground. So he was one of the first uh, biological anti-Semites in Hungary. And indeed, during his uh, first tenure as prime minister in 1920, he was responsible for uh, the first anti-Jewish laws, anti-Semitic laws in Hungary, the so-called numerous clausus legislation. This numerous clausus legislation tied the share of incoming Jewish students uh, to the share of to the Jewish share in the general population, meaning that uh, Jews made up about 6% of the Hungarian population and only 6% of first-year students could be Jewish. Now, this, mean, this meant in Budapest where the percentage was about 30-40% depending on the faculties, it meant basically the ex exclusion of Jews from Hungarian universities and the destruction of uh, the life of many young 
uh, men and women. So his attitude, his, 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 his actions during the white terror were contradictory. He, in the fall of 1920, um, dissolved uh, the civilian paramilitary groups. So on the one hand, he had to reign in the white terror. Um, on the other hand, he was responsible for the first anti-Semitic legislation in Hungarian history. And then after 1938, 1939, he uh, made a major role in uh, the preparation and passing of the first and the second anti-Jewish laws, which significantly uh, reduced Jewish share in, uh, in, uh, in the Hungarian culture and economic life, and social life. Who was Bishop Otokar Prohaska? What did his anti-Semitic tract, Culture and Terror, say? What were its ramifications? Otokar Prohasko is a highly controversial individual in Hungarian history. He was a brilliant theologian, a, a, an excellent philosopher. He was also the founder of Christian socialism, the Christian socialist movement in Hungary. And Christian socialism, uh, the Christian socialists, uh, as their name rightly suggests, did pay attention to the plight of Hungarian peasants and Hungarian workers. And they were also relatively tolerant towards some of the ethnic minorities, just like the, uh, like the Slovaks, the Croats. So they opposed the assimilation tendencies and the assimilationist policies of the Hungarian political elite. Uh, but the Christian socialist movement was also one of the mainstays of anti-Semitism in Hungary. And Otto Kaprohaska was uh, one, uh, if not the most important anti-Semitic ideologues in the late 19th century. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the Christian socialist, he himself, uh, a student of, uh, of German Christian socialists such as Stöcker, um, uh, also Karl Luger um, in, in Vienna. Um, he, he, um, he's, he, he's a founder of political anti-Semitism in Hungary. So he, he justifies anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish attitudes on a very different a secular grounds. So he, he believes he equates Jews with secularization. He equates uh, Jews Jewish influence with the negative aspects of modernity, with uh, with the social differentiation, class uh, struggle, uh, the rise of socialism, uh, social democracy, class antagonism, uh, impoverishment, uh, prostitution, um, um, uh, increased crime rates, uh, the lack of housing. So he blames every uh, negative aspects of modernity and every negative aspects of failed or the omissions of modernization in Hungary on Hungarian Jews. Um, he blames capitalism. He blames uh, he blames uh, uh, secularization on Hungarian Jews. He also equates liberalism. Uh, with Jewish influence. Uh, the, in a, in a, during the First World War, his anti-Semitism 
uh, became more radical. And uh, during the war, two new enemies and two new stereotypes uh, emerge, uh, which equate Jews with democracy, uh, left-wing liberalism, and more important, uh, uh, democracy, and, and communism. And in this famous track, uh, you refer to terror, culture and terror, blames uh, Jews uh, for uh, the rise and the victory of democracy in Hungary in 1918. And in this famous track, he continues to repeat the same uh, the same stereotypes about uh, uh, the impact of Jews on Hungarian culture. So he, 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 he promotes and, and demands the reconquest of cultural space. He argues that Jews had been too influential, especially in the realm of culture, in the realm of economy, but also in culture. They are uh, not only uh, influential, but they dominate Hungarian press. They uh, dominate uh, publishing and demands uh, that uh, Jews uh, should be uh, should be driven back, uh, the, the, the social cultural space reconquered from Jews. Um, um, so he, he basically wants to return uh, the clock to 1848. What certainly, at minimum, he wants to uh, wants to um, marginalize um, Hungarian Jews. Um, this track is one of the most important, uh, uh, becomes a program in the interwar period. So this, this this political essay, if you could call it short, as it was about 30 pages, it uh, it became uh, part and parcel of of uh, the uh, of the ideology and political program of the interwar conservative authoritarian state. Now, how they you 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 know they plan to achieve this reconquest? Because we talk always about reconquest, taking uh, taking what belonged to to to, the, to Magyars back it was unclear. It was unclear. Uh, unclear would it be uh, uh, done through legal measures like the Numenians? Uh, 1819 was on both sides of the fence. Perpetrators of violence in Budapest. And he also one of the, the one of the main proponents of the anti uh, of the numerous clauses legislation. One of the main sponsors of the numerous clauses legislation. So his influence was enormous. Um, he represented the right wing, the most anti-Semitic wing within the Catholic uh, hierarchy, the Catholic elite. Can you tell us about the? internment camps in Hungary that you describe in this book. How many people were held there? What were the conditions like there? So I mentioned earlier, the numbers, the internment camps was one of these facilities which, uh, uh, which held prisoners uh, during the Civil War. About 70,000 people um, experienced uh, confinement between 1919 and 1920. About 10,000 uh, people were, uh, were held captive or were held captive in these internment camps. Uh, the internment camps were originally uh, meant to house POWs during the war and after the war, returning soldiers 
who had to go through a screening process, uh, uh, returning soldiers from Russia and also from Italy, who were suspected of communist sympathies and had to go through a screening process. So they were held uh, in these internment camps for a few days or perhaps a few weeks. And uh, by 19, at the end of 1919, they basically their main function was to house political prisoners. The conditions were horrendous, horrendous, uh, uh, mainly by default. These were not meant to house tens of thousands of people. They were hastily constructed, as I mentioned earlier, uh, shacks. Uh, no running water, uh, pure sanitation, um, uh, uh, little protection against cold. The food, uh, what uh, food they did not provide food. The food was usually provided by relatives, and the guards regularly stole everything what they could. Obviously, food, but also money, any any aid, clothing, uh, what the relatives brought in. Well, in compared to. Uh, the Nazi camps or even the Gulag camps, uh, the, the, the borders or the, the fences was porous. So many times people could escape. Sometimes, interestingly enough, uh, the guards encouraged uh, encouraged prisoners to take off. Um, and the, the cars were corrupt. They could be paid off. Um, so generally... Uh, the conditions, uh, the, the chance to survive this camp was relatively good, relatively good. But, uh, but by and large, my estimation about between 20 or 30 percent of them either died in the camp or died shortly after their release. Um, so uh, the comparison could be made to POW camps in, in, in Russia. Um, or the eastern part of Europe uh, during the First World War. Uh, conditions somewhat worse than in Germany, a German POW camp or French POW camps. But POW camps in general, when we think of First World War POW camps, we think of 10% mortality rates. So here, the mortality rates was, was higher, um, but uh, it did not get even close to what we experienced in a, in a, in a, in a labor camps in a, in a during the second world war can you compare and contrast these internment camps in hungary with the concentration camps that nazis would later establish what were the similarities and differences I mentioned earlier the the, the nazi camps were uh, set up for two reasons uh, either they were extermination camps or they were labor camps. The, the, so the inmates had to do hard labor. They were not meant to survive. Uh, their fate was extermination through labor. And the survival rate uh, was, uh, was, uh, was uh, very low, and uh, an average prisoners lived uh, for about six months. Uh, six months. Now, in, in in these camps, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Hungarian internment camps, labor was uh, not a major factor. In some camps, uh, the inmates were first forced to work, but that was not the main profile. They were held there. They were held there. So we cannot talk about extermination through labor. Uh, nevertheless, 
the treatment because of uh, the bad treatment, torture, rape, as I mentioned earlier, was very common. Um, uh, uh, mortality rates were high. So it was, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the chance uh, was was good to survive, but uh, uh, nevertheless, one out of five inmates died either during internment or uh, shortly after their release. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your attention has gone since completing this book? I have just completed a, a book which I wrote it with 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 uh, with, uh, with Joyce, some which deals with Jewish responses uh, to the white terror and the civil war. And the book is entitled "Black uh, uh, Black Humor and the White Terror," and it deals with uh, the various ways uh, the uh, Hungarian, especially urban Jews, dealt with uh, 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 the physical insult, physical assaults, and verbal insults in this period. And so this book deals with, um, particularly with humor. It contrasts uh, Jewish humor with non-Jewish humor. It contrasts uh, the, the, the humor of the victims with the humor of the perpetrators. You already mentioned about the connection between torture and, and entertainment on one side, and uh, examines Jewish humor as a form of defense. As a, as a form of protection and self-preservation, preservation as individuals and as community. Uh, I, uh, I, it examines Jewish black humor. It examines Jews, uh, uh, Jew humor as anti-defamation, uh, fighting uh, the rise of new and more pernicious anti-Jewish stereotypes like uh, Jews as shirkers of their military duty, bad soldiers, or communists. And the book, in the last phase, it looks at uh, the relationship between, in the middle of uh, a middle of humor, jokes, cabarets, uh, novels, um, uh, uh, novels, essays, um, and uh, films, early films, uh, between uh, the Hungarian political and cultural elite, the disintegration, the end of this Jewish-Hungarian symbiosis in the 1920s, and uh, the increased tensions between various segments of Hungarian Jewish of the Hungarian Jewish community, uh, between neologues and orthodox, between Zionists and assimilationists. Uh, this book has been published or came out uh, this year in April. And uh, and uh, uh, it has been a, 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 for me a, a, a great exper experiment experience because I I did somewhat different I did cultural history here uh, 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 so a little bit methodologically the book represented a challenge and um, I, I I enjoyed writing the book and I hope the readers find uh, find it uh, both useful and enjoyable to understand. Uh, uh, Hungarian and uh, European uh, history in uh, the immediate post-war period. This experience has been my hallowed honor. It's been my privilege to learn from you, to listen to you, and to benefit from your erudition and wisdom. I cannot thank you enough for everything you shared with me during the course of our dialogue. 
and during the duration of our conversation. All right. And thank you very much for the invitation. I can only say the same. It was very nice making your acquaintance, and I hope that we will remain in touch. Yes, I would be thrilled and honored. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Ari. Bye-bye. As we end our dialogue today, I am signing off by reminding you that I am Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Bella Baudot. He is an associate professor at the University of Bonn in the Department of East European History. He earned his BA from the University of Debrecen Sen in Hungary. He earned his honors BA from the University of Toronto his master's in 1992 and his PhD in 1998 from York University in Toronto. He has been a tenured tenured associate professor at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri. Subsequently, he came to Germany in 2015. He was a fellow at the Imre Kurtes College at the University of Jena in 2013 and 2014. His latest book, Black Humor and the White Terror, has recently come out from Routledge Publishers. Thank you so much for your time and attention.